Bob Bowker spent nearly 40 years with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, serving in uh, five Middle East posts, including two years with the UN um, based in Gaza and Jerusalem. Now, following his life as a diplomat, Bob spent 12 years as an academic at the ANU and as an intelligence analyst with the Office of National Assessment. And he's just released his memoir and joins me from Canberra. Bob, there's so much to unpack. You were in a really unique position because when the first Gulf War broke out under George Bush Sr., you were our ambassador to Jordan. Could you start by telling us what that was like? Oh, thank you, Philip. It, it was an extraordinary period, of course. Uh, I had to hurry back from Australia uh, where I was attending to some family matters. Um, my first concern was to ensure the, uh, the safety of the Australian community there uh, and, of course, uh, the embassy staff and to uh, encourage as many Australians as possible to heed the consular advice uh, to leave. Um, and then in the meantime, uh, while that process was going on, uh, to facilitate the exit of Australians from Kuwait and Iraq and so on through Jordan, which was quite challenging in its own right. So there were pressures from all sorts of directions. Uh, there was extraordinary interest on the part of the Australian media in what was going on. And uh, above all else, I think, uh, I had to uh, do what I could to ensure that those Australians who were caught up in uh, this situation, uh, in particularly those who found themselves as uh, held as hostages uh, effectively uh, in Iraq, uh, uh, were uh, put in uh, the best possible position to be extracted from that situation. Uh, so it was, a, it was an extraordinarily uh, multifaceted situation to be in, a uh, very challenging professionally and sometimes uh, personally as well. Well, of course, you had to get your wife and kids out of the country. Well, they weren't so much of an issue. Uh, it was more of a problem uh, when they wanted to return. Uh, and I had to make the very tough professional decision uh, that I advised the department against allowing uh, the families, uh, including my wife, uh, who were agitating to be allowed to return, uh, uh, had to advise against them being allowed to do so. It must have been a time for shredding files. Yeah, and that's a very stressful process because on the one hand, it's a physical thing. You have a a machine grinding away and you have sometimes a, a canister on the roof smoking away, uh, but it induces a sense of anxiety among those who are doing that, uh, which is very hard to understand if you haven't actually done it. My memory also is of uh, being invited by the British ambassador to do a reading of uh, the 23rd Psalm, uh, the Lord is my shepherd and, and so on, at a church service, and uh, he thought that would be a good idea. Halfway through the reading, I found that the uh, substantial part of the congregation were reduced to tears. So that's the sort of environment that you find yourself working in, uh, uh, and you have to exercise some leadership. You have to be seen to be uh, in command of the facts and being willing to communicate to people who are concerned uh, 
uh, what do you think uh, they ought to be doing? Talking of leadership, let's introduce King Hussein. He uh, miscalculated his response, in your view, badly by calling for a negotiated Arab solution. What was wrong with that? Well, it was one of those situations which, uh, in principle, uh, sounded okay, but in practice, uh, events were moving far too quickly for his approach uh, to be sustainable. You had the the Saudis and uh, the Egyptians and the political climate in Washington demanding immediate responses, and Hussein was left being presented by his critics uh, uh, as someone who was prepared to prevaricate on the future of Kuwait, having which had just at that stage been taken over by the Iraqis. And you suspect that his attitudes may have been, uh, well, fine-tuned by the fact that Iraqi funding was so important to him. Well, there's a popular misconception that uh, the relationship between Hussein, uh, uh, King Hussein and Saddam Hussein uh, was uh, was close. That was a mistake, uh, mistaken perception. In fact, uh, I'm aware that uh, the attitude that King Hussein had towards Saddam uh, had become increasingly sceptical. Uh, yes, he needed uh, Iraqi financial support, uh, uh, but he was also very aware that Saddam was not to be trusted. Uh, certain things that Saddam did, uh, which uh, Hussein became aware of, uh, confirmed him in that suspicion. Uh, and uh, the response that King Hussein made to Saddam's rash invasion of, of Kuwait was anything but a demonstration of some sort of clientelism on the part of, of King Hussein towards Saddam. It was a genuinely held view uh, that uh, a military response to this situation uh, could lead to all sorts of open-ended questions about not only the future of Kuwait, uh, uh, but also the, the future of Iraq and the wider region. And sadly, I think King Hussein's appreciation of that was probably more accurate than many others. Fast forward to uh, 2003 when our government decides to throw its lot in with the US and commit forces to the overthrow of Saddam's regime. But by this time, you were back in Australia at the Centre for Defence and Strategic Studies expressing concerns about the course on which the US and its partners were embarking. What were your concerns, Bob? Well, I... I I wrote a paper. Uh, uh, I wasn't in the, as you say, I wasn't in DFAT at the time and I was free to uh, let my uh, opinions be known to those who were interested in the, in the policy community generally and analytical community generally. And I picked up on two things really. Firstly, that we needed to be mindful that what the Americans had in mind was uh, something which was basically in inachievable. Uh, the idea that not only uh, the uh, Saddam regime could be militarily defeated, but that Iraq itself could be reconstructed according to some notion of democratic process uh, uh, was simply fanciful. I thought it was important for Australians not to become uh, involved in 
that uh, in that sort of fantasy world of uh, social engineering that clearly some elements in the American system uh, had in mind. Hen- uh, hence your recommendations that we should set limits to our support for US objectives in the wider Gulf region. That's right. Uh, uh, I've long argued for a an approach to security in the Gulf, uh, uh, which was which would be based on an inclusive, comprehensive approach in which the competing interests of the various countries of the Persian Gulf uh, could at least be the subject of discussion and uh, a an awareness uh, of the capacity to reconcile in some areas and remain adversarial in others uh, could become the basis of, of uh, a more predictable uh, Middle East. Bob, I think you were speaking for many of us when you made the point the invasion would fuel popular antipathy, not just in Iraq, but throughout the region towards America and its allies. Yes. Uh, what we have to appreciate is that these are societies that will not be beholden to external pressure uh, in the way that might have been true uh, during the Cold War period. Governments in the Persian Gulf and beyond have uh, economic, financial, diplomatic muscle, uh, and they are prepared to use it uh, in pursuit of what they perceive to be their interests. The Americans and the Israelis, of course, uh, are the uh, popular execration objects of choice, uh, but the, the prospect of the United States remaining in Iraq, seeking to engineer a change in an Arab society, uh, uh, was simply going to inflame reactions uh, uh, which uh, have endured. What we've seen uh, not only has been an expanded strategic space for Iran with direct consequences for Iraq and Syria and Israel, uh, but we've seen the militarization and the politicization of sectarian narratives. Uh, and uh, we've seen the growth of militias and criminality and population displacements and the brutalization of Arab societies. And, and those will be the enduring legacies of this Iraqi experience. What you knew of Iraqi society made you, uh, well, warn of a high risk of uh, domestic chaos. Yes, the, the Iraqis have one of the most sophisticated uh, political classes uh, of the region. They, they were an extraordinarily uh, secular society so far as their politics were concerned before uh, the events of 2003. Uh, uh, external analysts tend to focus on Sunni Shia uh, issues as somehow or other shaping Iraqi society. And that was not true. Uh, the, uh, the, the reality in Iraq was that the differentiation between Sunni and Shia uh, was essentially cultural rather than political. Uh, and both sides had worked out ways of, of living with each other to their, their mutual advantage. The weakening of the Iraqi state uh, and the 
the militarization and the politicization of sectarian narratives uh, have uh, have essentially overridden those traditional cultural religious identities and i don't see how iraq can be stitched back together now uh, uh, once that genie has been released from the bottle <laughs> I know you believed uh, supporting the US raised Australia's uh, good economic, well, risked Australia's good economic uh, relations with Saudi and Iran. Yes, I, I've always found that Australia's image in the region uh, was devoid of historical baggage. Uh, we were seen as a, a credible trading partner, an interlocutor on on uh, areas of mutual economic and commercial advantage that, uh, the, in which the government could be expected to uh, play a, a worthwhile part. But uh, there was a considerable risk that uh, we uh, could come out of our engagement in, in a military activity being seen in a very different way. I was a bit reassured, I must say, uh, uh, when it all happened um, by the reaction of some of my Jordanian friends who, on seeing the footage of Australian sailors uh, uh, boarding their vessels and, and heading off to the Gulf, immediately assumed that uh, this was something that was happening uh, because the Americans had instructed us to do so. And this was something with which Jordanians were all too sadly familiar. This is the best of LNL from 2023, and back in March, I spoke to former Australian diplomat Bob Bowker as we marked the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War. What was the alternative to war, Bob? In 2003... I believe the alternative was uh, to fall back upon the role of the Arab community at large in uh, pushing back against uh, Saddam's ambitions. Uh, he had been severely dealt with uh, in regard to Kuwait. Uh, his capacity to project uh, Iraqi military power, uh, including areas such as uh, uh, in areas in regard to uh, uh, neighbouring Arab states was 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 very limited indeed, um, and the likelihood of Saddam remaining in place uh, and not posing a threat to the region, I think, was considerably greater than the risk of Saddam making good on some of his rhetoric uh, directed against Israel. You are also arguing for a substantial effort to support economic development, particularly the rehabilitation of the agricultural sector. Yes, right across the Arab world, from, from Libya to Iraq, uh, Australia has enjoyed a very positive uh, relationship in the agricultural sector because our climatic conditions have been uh, quite comparable to many parts of the Arab world. Particularly like dry, in, in dry region agriculture. Precisely. Dry land farming uh, uh, has been one of those areas where Australian expertise has been applied. Uh, and indeed, we have uh, acquired some useful insights uh, from Arab experience uh, in things such as the cultivation of vetch, uh, which, uh, which we gained uh, seed material and, and other uh, material uh, from, uh, from 
the experimental stations uh, in uh, in Syria uh, near Aleppo, uh, but also it it resonated uh, with Arab societies because they could see that uh, there was a connection between those Australians who went to Syria and Iraq and Libya and elsewhere who were essentially on their wavelength. Uh, they weren't there to achieve any political or strategic objective. They were just there uh, because they each had a common interest in pushing forward uh, the boundaries of agricultural poss- cooperation possibilities. And that was a good thing. Well, your wise views on uh, alternatives to war were not persuasive. So in 2004, the Iraq war is still raging and something extraordinary happens to you. Foreign Minister Downer appoints you as our ambassador to Egypt and you head to Cairo in 2005. What insights did living in Egypt give you into the broad, broader impact of the war, Bob? I think the, my experience of dealing with Egypt uh, uh, was in many ways uh, the most rewarding of my uh, experiences in the Middle East uh, because the Egyptians have an extraordinarily sophisticated understanding, not only of their brother Arabs, but also of that relationship with the United States. And the Egyptians, uh, while they were anxious to see US involvement in pushing uh, Iraq out of Kuwait, the Egyptians were always deeply sceptical about the Iraq venture in 2003. They found that their reservations were validated uh, and they could express those uh, reservations without undue damage to their relationship with the United States. And that, that was an important part of, I think, the, uh, the reshaping of perceptions in the region of uh, the utility of the American uh, relationship. The fact that the United States uh, was prepared to continue a uh, a significant uh, military presence in the region for its own reasons, in a way, uh, opened up some space for the Arab states to start making their own decisions about how uh, they wish to see the region uh, uh, operate within that US umbrella. And they found they had a fair bit of scope uh, to do that. I'm talking to Bob Bowker, retired diplomat, former Australian ambassador to Jordan and Egypt, and author of Tomorrow There Will Be Apricots, an Australian diplomat in the Arab world, published by Shoreline. Now, Bob, you were in Egypt to observe the rise of Islamism in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood, weren't you? Yes, uh, we were quite forward-leaning on on that issue. Uh, I think a little to the discomfort of my Egyptian friends uh, uh, because I could see that the Brotherhood, uh, as a long-established, credible, uh, social and and, uh, political organisation within Egypt, uh, needed to be understood by Western interlocutors. On, on straightforward things such as what would be the attitude of the Brotherhood uh, if it should uh, acquire more power or indeed come to power, uh, what would be its attitude to economic dealings with Australia? Would it still welcome Australian investment? Uh, uh, how did it view our 
our role in the region and so on. And so I was quite uh, prepared to have discussions with senior figures in the Brotherhood, have them to lunch, observe the absence of fingernails on the part of some of my guests, um, <laughs> and find, to my, to my relief, uh, that provided Australian investors were responsible in their in their approach to dealing uh, with Egypt, that they were prepared to be balanced in in terms of their uh, social responsibilities, uh, and in, if they were prepared to be environmentally sensitive in in what they were doing in areas such as mining, um, then uh, there was no inherent problem on the part of the from the perspective of the Brotherhood in having that relationship. Indeed, within the Brotherhood, there was always this tension between uh, those who regarded the political objectives of the Brotherhood as being primarily directed towards social welfare, uh, and on the other hand, those in the Brotherhood who said, well, the, the best form of social welfare is economic growth and business. And after all, uh, uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, uh, was, uh, was a trader himself. This is the best of LNL for 2023, and back in March, before the latest conflict in Gaza, I spoke to former Australian diplomat Bob Bowker as we were marking the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War. Bob spent a substantial amount of time living and working in Israel for the UN Relief Works Agency, so I asked what he thought the prospects were for a two-state solution. I'm... Sad to say that when I look at the Israeli-Palestinian situation, uh, uh, the the two-state solution is indeed uh, no longer an avenue that is able to be pursued. It reminds me very much of uh, a a moment in Damascus uh, back in 1979 when I was attending the investiture of a new head of one of the Eastern Orthodox churches. and uh, strapped in a chair uh, observing the proceedings uh, was the predecessor of uh, uh, the new head of the church. Uh, His corpse was turning blue. Uh, There was a fan blowing him away from us, but being August in Damascus, the power kept failing, at which point an altar boy would rush out with some incense and spray it all over us. Uh, The peace process, uh, the two-state solution to the peace process, unfortunately has some similarities uh, to that that moment in the sense that the two-state solution is dead. Uh, the difference uh, is that there is no alternative there to be viewed. And, uh, no, and no amount of incense can persuade our political nostrils otherwise. No, and it's difficult because uh, uh, you can't expect a, a minister to advocate a one-state approach, uh, which is in fact the only way that this can now go, uh, uh, when neither the Israelis nor the Palestinians are prepared at this stage or organised politically and ideologically uh, to pursue that one-state approach. Uh, As you would remember in Dante's Inferno, uh, the damned emotionless uh, and frankly, neither side at this stage is prepared to move. A sobering thought. Former Australian ambassador to Jordan and Egypt and author of Tomorrow There Will Be Apricots, an Australian diplomat in the Arab world. The author is Bob Bowker and the book is published by Shoreline. 
think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.